Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impact these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Abby Kaufman. With the first quarter of 2021 coming to a close, we've invited New Frontier Data's longtime friend and investor to return to the show to weigh in. Mitch Baruchowicz is the founder and managing partner of Merida Capital Partners, arguably one of the most prolific investors in the global cannabis industry. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome back to Canopy. It is my absolute pleasure, and I can't be more excited to be joined by Giada. It's, it's, we've never done one before. <laughs> it's been a little too long, for sure. We were yeah. overdue. Sure. And so as if one cannabis trailblazer was not exciting enough, it's my honor to introduce our second guest for today's episode, uh, New Frontier Data's very own founder and executive chair, the one, the only, Giada de Carcer. Giada, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Always delighted to be here. And as Mitch said, even more so with Don Burroughs, as I like with to call With limited bandwidth from Italy. <laughs> so to dive right in, uh, I know that you both recently participated in the Cannabis Mexico Summit. So uh, before we get into the industry outlook for the United States, we wanted to get your perspectives on a recent New York Times article, which reported that more than two years after the Mexican Supreme Court ruled that the country's ban on recreational marijuana was unconstitutional, lawmakers have approved a bill to legalize recreational marijuana. So medicinal cannabis was legalized in Mexico more than three years ago. Mitch, why do you think it took so long to pass the adult use legislation? Well, uh, I think you started with the, the, you buried the lead in some ways. While <laughs> the Supreme Court um, legislated that the, the ban was unconstitutional, that doesn't mean that there's a way to regulate it. And I think John Kagia, actually, you know, New Frontier's own, actually made a great point several can weeks ago that I did with him when he said, it's not just enough to decriminalize, you actually have to have a way to reg regulate or legislate it the right way. And I think given the, the Mexican, there's, there's some unique cultural aspects of the Mexican populace that are worth noting uh, that I actually noted at the Mexico summit. So to, to be a little bit duplicative, there, Mexicans are, there's not a wide majority of, of people in favor in Mexico of legalization right this second. And I think advocates and uh, the regulatory underpinnings of this new effort really deserve a tremendous amount of credit for, for navigating those headwinds and also moving forward when the, the popularity is not, it's negligible for, for adult use while medical is very popular. And I think while medical is, is preferred in Mexico, it took three years for them to get the, I guess you would say the comfort level of the Mexican regulators to a certain level where they could feel comfortable passing a regulatory regime to passing the rules that they might have, lab testing. Think of how much infrastructure has to go to a country, right? This isn't like the United States where you're passing local laboratories each state. This is an entire federal regime, the largest country to ever take this on, much larger than Canada from a population perspective, almost three times the size. And it's a state and it's a place that isn't necessarily known for the type of illicit market you might find in the United States or Canada, which I'm going to use loosely as a benign illicit market. Mexico's illicit market is, is much more challenging because of their historical challenges with organized crime. And so I think a lot of that comes together to create a huge headwind that regulators and uh, advocates and and the, and the like who push this forward uh, really um, 
they really navigate it and they deserve a lot of credit. Remember though, the one thing I'll say about the, the case in, in 2018, which is important to notice, is that it was someone who had uh, epilepsy. So even though they ruled that the ban on all illegality was unconstitutional, it was driven by originally by a medical use case. So it's, it's worth noting that. First of all, the interesting that it is, again, a medical case, it was a catalyst. It seemed that it often is the case on a worldwide basis. We've seen that quite a few times. But I did want to add another to uh, agreeing with all that Mitch said and, and very well said. Um, an element that I think is worth adding is Mexico is the, the Mexican population is a very religious population. And so there, there is, there continues to be a, a relatively strong stigma around the plant. So there is that organized crime element, um, but there is also just a, a general stigma associated with religion, whereby uh, the, the general population looks at the plant as something that is just, well... I think Pope Francis, wasn't like, it, who, uh, he actually came out with a mandate that said... <clears throat> that it's okay to use for medical, but that adult use is still kind of, I, didn't, I don't think he used the word immoral. I, I don't remember reading the translation directly, but that that's driven a lot of Mexico's, uh, but, yes. but they still gotten up to like 40%, which which deserves a tremendous they amount did. of credit. Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that's happened, although there's a lot of effort in educating the general population about its medicinal value, and it may also be why it's taken so long, because it literally the information had to get to everyone. Also, let's remember that Mexico has, in terms of you know the, the economic health of the, the, the population, there's a big divide in, edu in levels of education. Um, and so getting that information to as many people as possible, again, credit to, you know, the government and the country to really push that effort. There are 127 million people in Mexico. So, yeah. And given that size, um, so Mexico would represent the largest cannabis market in the world by, by population. So, Mitch, given that size, what do you expect in terms of international interest and investment in, in Mexico? Well, I think it's going to be <clears throat> phenomenal. I, I do think there's some cautionary tales. I, I found the Mexican summit uh, to be really enlightening in that um, there's a lot of people who are cautious about the, the overhype that we saw in certain markets like Canada or Colombia. I thought it was kind of interesting to watch all of these professional advisors in Mexico already talking about the scaffolding that the market needs and how we don't want to uh, replicate the mistakes of Colombia, which got overheated. And I thought that drawing the contrast to the Colombian market was quite interesting uh, because most of the Colombian interest is about export, not necessarily home consumption or by home, I mean, uh, domestic consumption. And I did think, um, I think investment is going to be really interesting for a few reasons. I think there's four really highlights that, that maybe we should all be focusing on from the opportunity set. And obviously Giada studies this like I do. So I'd love to hear her thoughts. But so the four things I think are interesting is number one, when you have a federal regime, this is not this is much different than the United States, which has sort of regional biases driving their laws, right? Not every state has a legality, and some states are now only legalizing for medical use, very rarely the case in South Dakota where you do both. So the fact that you go from kind of zero to 60, although there was a medical regime uh, in place, it was very lightly used in Mexico. It was kind of frowned upon. And even CBD, one of our companies has a contract for CBD, not an easy market to penetrate. So it's interesting that there's going to be a cultivation registry, which will allow standardized uh, a standard uh, standards-based regulation, which I think is great for regulators to get educated and to help grow the industry with with that. 
um, you know, whether it's quality control or supply chain sort of uh, good manufacturing, practice, uh, manufacturing practices, GMP, GAP, that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's interesting that there's going to be a patient registry and a doctor's registry, which allows, again, standardization and a true medical regime, which remember the Mexican patient themselves have not had a great program to really build off of. Because if you don't have scale, you're not going to get products that are cost effective. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting that medicine is going to be sold side by side in pharmacies um, next to opioids or other medicines. So the Mexican patient is going to have alternatives. They're going to they're going to have access to those alternatives. Again, not the same way as the United States, much more beneficial down there for now. I think they'll have access to capital and banks and professional providers. The 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 Mexican Cannabis Summit was amazing for showing how engaged uh, professional providers are. It's not like the New York lawyer in 2015 who told me he couldn't represent me because the Bar Association hadn't opined on the ethics around it, which is nuts, but it happened. And then the fact that the Supreme Court ruled uh, for this in 2018 shows you that it's not just one segment of the, the regulatory infrastructure that's behind this. It's actually, you know, because someone could have challenged this in court. The fact that the Supreme Court already ruled on it means that you're actually going to get a pretty broad-based consensus at the, let's call it at the upper echelon of the elite political uh, base of Mexico. So I think when you get everyone aligned, you know, in the United States or other countries, even Canada for that matter, health Canada is still moving very slow on certain form factors and other things because there's there's really pockets of people who don't support it. And I think in Mexico, what you're noticing is at the top levels, because the popular as Giada said, the popular uh, consensus isn't there yet. It's one of the few countries you may find where popular consensus is not what's driving the legality, which I think is a very unique thing. And I think that shows that, you know, there's like the Mark Andreessen famous thing, which says, if you have a thousand fans, you have a business. You know, I think there's a huge passionate base of people in Mexico to the point where they built right in front of the the uh, Senate building in, in that square, there's a huge marijuana farm growing and I've seen great pictures about someone doing yoga. Again, I asked all the Mexican people on the summit to send me some great pictures that I could post on Twitter. It's incredible. There is a huge marijuana farm literally in front of the Senate building in Mexico, which shows that there's the passionate advocates who are going to make sure that this program gets launched, launched correctly. And then there are people, obviously, if they're already engaged with people like New Frontier, they're using data. They're already thinking about this. And I think that's a huge advantage when you have that federal consensus from day one. Agreed. <clears throat> Something that I found um so something that's interesting also about Mexico, I mean, they've had the advantage of looking at all these other nations and to study it and see how they've done it, right? They looked at Uruguay, they looked at Colombia, they looked at Canada, they're looking at what they're doing here. So <clears throat> they have the advantage of sort of having learned by best practices, but also the mistakes of others. Just, and, and when you look at how they really, when they did a deep dive into truly understanding how Colombia and Uruguay were doing it, given that they're other two more mature Latin American nations. I mean, you can see that they're, you know, they're as 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 Mitch said, this may not be driven by populist demand. There are other drivers. And when you look at Uruguay, Uruguay is trying to position itself as sort of that trade gateway, right? Like look into export and become like a big trading center. Colombia would like to be become a hub of cultivation again within with an export sort of agenda. Mexico's geoposition makes it and, and its trading history with the United States, which continues to be the epicenter of consumption worldwide, makes it that a commercial driver, a, a, a sort of a revenue generating driver is one that is truly important in Mexico. 
So I think it's really a matter of, of dollar sign. I mean, today the value uh, of, of the annual demand is about 3.2 billion US dollars. That could explode if you expand beyond consumption in Mexico and you start thinking about what could happen across borders. That's actually a great point. And, and it just made me think of something that I think I brought up on the summit, which I just kind of glossed over. But also the fact that because you have this federal support from day one, you're more likely to get some type of rational exportation law and Im importing for that matter. So I think in Mexico, you know, you're not just going to get big. It's not going to be like big ag. You're going to get big ag might look at the export markets, right? Cheap, large, high volume, biomass, et cetera. And then on the on the other side, you might get more of a craft sort of patient focused, consumer focused. The other thing also, you know, we, we don't even ever talk about, but I know Giada that you and I have spoken about for the last five years, hemp, I mean- <laughs> I Mexican, was waiting for you to bring it up. <laughs> Mexico industrial hemp, uh, they, it's kind of mind boggling me. I don't want to do it because I save it for Twitter users, but hempcrete y'all, it's like, that's my famous saying. It's I, Mexico is, is a tremendous exporter of net uh, physical goods like lumber. And I think the fact that they can now have an industrial base, the climate is probably not optimal in certain places for hemp, but Mexico is an optimal place to, for the, you know, if you can create hempcrete rather than concrete, just reducing the weight of the shipping means you're going to get better Mexican housing, better insulation. I mean, it really can change on a lot of ways. And one of the things I really am passionate about in the summit is the fact that Mexico, you're going to see a lot of um, disruption and also really positive results on the medical side on the industrial side, whenever you can reduce cost in a place like Mexico where COGS really matter to quality of life and those type of elements, you really, these laws really do change, um, you know, the way society can function in some ways. And that's like really, for me, that's, wow. It's, you know, you can do well, do good. It's really exciting. And it's kind of like heartwarming to think of how many changes you can see in Mexican society from this. Mitch, do you think that when you look, I, I was literally, I'm thinking out loud here. When you look at the timing, right? So they paused for two years, having which was, and in terms of the United States, the United States was under a different administration. Do you think there was potentially some thinking around pushing it for now in April under this new current administration, given that there has been sort of friction, right, and some challenges in terms of the two countries trading, and now there may be further opening? Do you think that may have been one of the layers? in terms of the thinking behind what's happening now? Well, no, actually, so one of the timing, um, maybe this wasn't entirely clear. You'd have to like dig pretty deep to, to get back and work backwards. It, the, the, the actual court case gave them a ticking clock to pass yeah, the law, I know. right? In yeah. So, but yes, you mean why they picked that April? Is that what you're kind of asking? Yeah. But, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think it's driven by a few factors. I think number one, the Supreme Court wanted to create enough time to create a regime, but if you push it too far out, then it, it, it can almost it be momentum. too esoteric and you won't get the buy-in. So I think that's one element. I think the second element that, you know, I've been noodling over because I think I've been thinking of writing something on Mexico uh, for a while because I, I've been intrigued by the fact that it's such a big market and they can solve a lot of their domestic problems by, by potentially legalizing here, legalizing there. Um, you know, I think they want to get in front of a US legalization for a few reasons. Uh, number one, I, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, I've, I've thought about yeah. the game theory around it is kind of intriguing. And, we, you know, one thing I do is I do make predictions. You know, obviously, I predict someone was going to go to Europe in the United States uh, in my last one. So I was ahead of that one on Cureleaf. But um, I try to make predictions on timing of, of regula regulations because I think 
who knows, you know, there's a lot of motivating factors that are hard to predict. But I do think when you speculate about why April, I think it was important for Mexico to get in front of the U.S. because they didn't want, if the U.S. goes legal and you have people going to Canada, you know, there's a, obviously there's a lot of transfer of, of people to, to California, Texas, et cetera, et cetera. And if you had a U.S. legalization, I think Mexico might have been concerned that they would have been forced to adopt a lot of what the U.S. did, which may not work for them, right? So because the U.S. It has a very unique, it, 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 the U.S. It, it employs a very unique system that states are legal. Remember, I've made this point a million times. It's not the legalization that matters. It's the normalization. And I think because the United States already has a functioning supply chain, a functioning in many states, that Mexico want when you're passing a federal law, you don't want to follow someone else's federal law that may not work. Like you said, for a population that's 60% against it still from an adult use, from a medical population that's barely touched the plant, from a stigmatic element, right? The Catholic Church was not for adult use and, and just recently uh, supported medical. So I think Mexico has a lot of work to do to build education that the United States doesn't. And I think they wanted to do that at their own pace rather than say, oh, the United States legalized. And then also, look, whenever you can get in front of the United States on anything, you don't look like the tail, you know, you don't, it doesn't feel as much as like they just did it in reaction to us. And I think that may get them more buy-in and earn them credibility with their populace. So uh, another thing that I, I, and I, and, and I knew that you had been thinking about it because I know how your mind works and, and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I was also wondering if maybe, I mean, what we've seen through the data, right, is that no, the, the, the demand continues to explode. And, you know, so there may be this idea of if they can get their act together before we become federal legal in the United States, that they might also have an opportunity to help meet the explosion of demand. If well, exportation. They have to set up. Yeah, biomass, right. exportation, yeah. industrial hemp. Yeah, there's probably a lot of elements of that. But remember, I, I mean, you're not, the federal illega illegality here which you know, you and I have probably spoken about 5,000 times, does create this unique element where the United States, it's not, I always, you know, kind of, I would say I'm a little bit harsh on people who draw the analogy to alcohol because alcohol was only illegal in the United States. And so the United States had built this incredibly illegal importation, you know, very sophisticated importation from ships, you know, watch the show Boardwalk Empire. There's, there's you know, stuff from Canadian routes to, to shipping to, that's not going to, you know, Mexico, I think, didn't want to deal with that. And so in their mind, like, think, can you imagine a massive exportation business from California into Mexico? I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense if I was. No, I the other way around. Right. No, no, I Matt. Think the other way right, around. right. I'm saying, you know, that that's why I think you have to get in front of the United States if you're Mexico, because you would then be kind of subject. You know, the, the United States does influence that. And I think, you know, just to make a broad point, which, well, actually, I don't want to get in front of Abby's kind of agenda, but. New York is a good example when the financial center of the world or the financial center of the United States, at least, passes a law, it touches financial people. Then the stigma goes away from there. The, you know, the nose in the air, like, oh, cannabis, when that starts to go down. And I think Mexico got had a chance to stamp their own, you know, their own uh, their own expression of what cannabis should be. And it's a pretty thoughtful law. It's a it's incredibly thoughtful for a country that had eight percent support in 2016 for, for a legalization. I mean, that's remarkable. That really, that that really is. And so to, before we get to, I do want to come back to the New York market because I know that that's um, literally your backyard. Um, so for 
in regards to uh, Mexico, so both Canada and Mexico will have legalized recreational cannabis. So how do you think this will impact the legal cannabis movement's momentum in North America, so the United States that's left? Well, it's it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to say it won't impact it, because it should. Obviously, when it's easier for a regulator to say, look, our southern neighbors have now passed it. Our northern neighbors have had it since October 17, 2017 or 18. Um, and what are we doing? You know, so it's more of a, let's call it a, a momentum driver. But I think the United States, it, legalization is not, it is, it is absolutely a fundamentally important thing. But a safe act solves a problem because the supply chain in the United States are intact, right? I, I, federalization of cannabis is not going to occur. It's going to be a state-by-state -state game for a long time. So I think that the normalization of cannabis is going to come before the legalization of the United States because sort of here in some ways. So in Mexico, you have you need the legalization to drive normalization. United States is the only place in the world because of our federalist system, right? States have their own ability to pass things and move them forward. So I, th I think the United States moves at its own pace still. And so I, I just don't, it's not that it's not impactful, but I, I do think people sometimes like for the soundbite, oh my God, this is the most important thing and the United States is gonna pass tomorrow. It's just, I mean, I try to be real and, and, and more nuanced about it. it. The federal legalization of cannabis in the United States is important, no doubt. It is not the most important thing occurring on the ground in cannabis right now in the United States, right? It is the people who are doing it on the state-based level, the growth, who are building the CAGR, you know, the new frontier chart of how much illegal activity there still is. <clears throat> still a massive market, Yada. You, you are the one who, you know, originally kind of wanted to draw that distinction with how big the illegal market is versus the legal market. And so I, I just think that you don't, a federal legalization of market does not make the cannibalization of the illicit market go faster. It really doesn't. It, it, in one day, it, it's going to take a year or two for that federal legalization to occur. But medical research will, will go on, capital efficiency, access to capital, cheaper capital, all those things will drive cannabis businesses forward. But what's happening at the state level is really what's driving it. And I don't think Mexico, if you're a regulator in Alabama who has, you know, who hasn't even passed a, a real medical law yet, it can help you say, look at what Mexico's done. We're, we're now behind Mexico, not to be like culture like culturally make some cultural comparison, but that is what happens, right? The UN removing it from its list of prescribed substances definitely helped Mexico get this legalization in place. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I mean, another so, point that your, your intrepid John made to me, you know, which is an important point about the UN. So the speaking of the UN and then the, on the international arena. So one of the things that I think about is, so what we're beginning to see sort of, and I, and I mentioned this actually at the, at the um, Mexico Cannabis Summit, we're beginning to see what appears to be the emergence of centers of excellence across regions, right? Which is a really interesting dynamic because the cannabis industry is a new, it's an emerging market, but it's an emerging market that's emerging on a global scale all at once. So instead of, you know, so, so it's, it's dynamic are now truly across the globe. And you're beginning to see sort of, again, continents or regions begin to sort of try to focus on certain areas. Of course, along with that, you have this trading and import-export, this interaction with, with countries and across regions. If that continues and continues to evolve the way it seems to be evolving now, where you see sort of Africa and Latin America kind of competing for that sort of, you know, uh, 
um, cultivation hub with potentially lower labor costs and therefore better wholesale pricing and therefore exporting. And then you're beginning to see the emergence of Asia Pacific, specifically Australia, New Zealand, and that area sort of really trying to push forward the medical pharmaceutical research from a very, very intense, very sophisticated, very, very um, uh, uh, interesting new research beyond what anyone else is doing. Then you continue to have North America as the epicenter of consumption, but also let's not forget that we do have some pretty amazing technology and innovation that it's occurring in cannabis in North America, specifically in the United States, that is now being also used, utilized, and adopted elsewhere, right? Specifically, let's think about processing, which right. is lacking in other areas. And then you have Europe, where Europe seems to sort of trying to figure out what's going to happen. They've got some pretty solid consumption. They're probably going to end up being a net importer because there's not really that much more land to cultivate. And there certainly seems to be an angle from the food and beverage and health and beauty perspective in terms of they could become sort of that epicenter of consumer packaged goods and get exported. I'm painting this picture because what's clear about all of this is there's going to be import-export. And I haven't even touched China and India with hemp. Okay, so I'm not even going to go there yet. And they already have a huge cultural belief in that. By the way, I just want to point out how amazing your point is about the, the, the U.S. being the epicenter of this illegal innovation early on, right? That pioneering ethos that we always talk about. I mean, California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, they literally 90% of the technology that's been innovated with product forms comes from a real legacy illegality that other, I don't think other countries have that same cowboy mentality because California really turned its cheek for, I mean, turned its eyes away from it for 20 years and just let it occur in this like quasi gray space. That's an amazing point you're making is like the United States is still, the innovation center of cannabis by far, by far, indeed. Yeah. But going back to yeah. that global, so the, the, the impact of, you know, what's going to happen, you know, how would, how does Canada and Mexico legalizing affect our legalization in the United States and does it, and how, what could be the impact of not getting that, you know, crossing that federal legalization line? My fear is that with the emergence of these centers of excellence and this massive global trading system and that is that is sort of we're seeing evolve, if we don't come up with a true federal structure, we're going to be left behind with this incredible high quality uh, sort of, you know, cultivation, seeds, et cetera, and also all this technology and the inability to play with others on a global scale. Now, that's not 100% true because there's obviously still some trading going on. But the question is, would it put us behind sort of the eight ball in relative to other nations, especially Mexico and Canada, both big nations, or China and India and Australia? How, how would you set an industrial trade on the United global States? If you, don't have, if you don't have a federal regime, how do you, how do you settle a trade, right? How do you get to a commodification of, of, exactly. of cannabis or hemp? Yeah, I agree exactly. with you. So that's, that's, to that's, me, that's a, a big question. Point. Yeah, it's a great yeah. one. Both of you have made excellent points. I should be taking notes as we're talking. Um, but speaking of the United States, uh, let's, let's just focus to what, again, is uh, your, your home state, Mitch, uh, and talk about the New York market. So according to a recent article in The Guardian, uh, New York is poised to join the <clears throat> growing number of states that have legalized the recreational use and sale of cannabis. The legislation would allow for recreational sales, licensing for delivery of cannabis products, and allow individual New Yorkers to grow cannabis for personal consumption. So Cuomo's administration has estimated legalization could eventually bring the state $350 million annually. 
Um, Mitch, do you have any predictions or expectations for a legal New York market? Well, I think it's a fait accompli at this point um, for a variety <laughs> of factors, but it's it's uh, it's it's done from what I understand, and it, it it's actually not not awful. I don't love the THC based taxation. I think it's they'll probably have to tweak that a little bit because it has like a fixed cost and then a nine percent and then a local tax. And I think that the state may want to rethink um, taxing on a THC basis. You know, it's just going to be very complicated. Require an incredible amount of um, of product specific accounting, which I think is going to be in a massive burden for the, the small operator, right? Who does who doesn't have you know? It's like 0.9, it's like nine bips per uh, per gram of THC. It's it's not. I don't think it's an ideal way to do it. I I, th I think there's a reason why other states have not done it. Um, so it's interesting to do it that way. I think New York is uh, it's the financial capital of the United States. I think that. The most interesting element of it is that New York had a medical regime that was so constrained and restrictive that you didn't really have the buy-in at the New York sort of patient level, consumer level. And I think New York is probably a $6 billion. I mean, Giada can probably say it better than I, but it's- Ten, ten, ten billion in, dollars yeah. in the next four years yeah. is what we're well, let's call it two to three. So let's say that 50, if they can get to a level where they're just California levels of fulfillment, you're talking about a $3 billion legal market by the end of 22, 23. So yeah, that's exactly what we got. Huge market. I think it would generate a lot more taxes. And like what we've seen is when you legalize, you not just get the illicit market cannibalization, you do get kind of a step function gain in in the new consumer as well. And I think that's kind of an intriguing thing to see because you know there was a recently an article in Forbes where the argument was like the illegal market's not going anywhere. Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously it's not going anywhere day one. But over time, what ends up happening is the choice, the access, the quality, and the safety are so much superior in the legal market. And if you look at the operators that are currently there, Cureleaf, Cresco, um, GTI, uh, Ianthus, Virio, um, gosh, Columbia Care, I might be forgetting one or two. Uh, there's one private one. When you look at those operators, these are people that have, have succeeded in tough markets, who have built great product sets, who will be, you know, day one, the New York market is going to have phenomenal products. And unlike California, that kind of stumbled its way into legality through rule changes. When you get such a robust process to pass the law, you've really fleshed out a lot of the issues that can pop up. So it's going to, I think it's done and it's going to be, the implementation is going to be interesting. I think, you know, setting up the, the office of cannabis management will, will, will definitely improve whenever you have a dedicated regulator right? You're going to get better responsiveness. That's what COVID kind of drove home to people is those regulators, the states that had regulators that were devoted, you know, not the Department of Health guy who lost the, the coin flip to, to regulate in cannabis. When you have dedicated regulators, you get a better program because those regulators understand their program's needs better. Yeah. And you mentioned that COVID, do you think uh, since one of the, the provisions with the adult use legalization there was delivered, I know in a past episode, um, the, the importance of delivery to compete with the illicit market was was addressed specifically for New York. Um, do you think that COVID had any impact on that for, for including that as a provision at no, all? No, I think delivery, from what I understand in the process, I think delivery is seen as a fairly easy way to include a lot of social equity applicants who, because it's it's fulfillment and it's a it's a it's like a capital light part of the business. Although I think regulators are going to realize that, um, when you talk about menuing and how tech has really intervened in delivery, that it's much more complicated than just uh, 
a, a someone picking it up and delivering it, you know, point to point that the, if I was a large wholesaler or a large retailer, I would want a fairly sophisticated delivery. So I get, you know, real time, uh, checkups on, on location. So I can, you know, stay, stay apprised of what's going on so that when people complain, the customer service might be handled, but obviously someone's going to hold the person they bought it from. They're not going to care about who, that. It was a third party delivering it. So I think third party delivery can be somewhat challenging. And, you know, when you look at companies that have done driven is one example or, or ease, you know, large delivery companies, technology is a huge element of it and doing it well, I mean, doing it well and, and doing it at scale. And so I think New York, the delivery element, it feels to me like that's kind of low hanging fruit for engaging people on lower capital requirements, things that are maybe more simple, but I think they're going to learn over time that it's, that the expectations, this is a much more sophisticated industry now. And I think the expectations of uh, of a retailer or a wholesaler or, or patients or consumers for that matter has is so much higher that there's a huge tech element and a huge real time day of delivery. <laughs> you know, you look at like what Truly's done in Florida or or other large companies that aren't necessarily in New York right now. And it's a sophisticated business on the delivery side. Fulfillment is way more complicated now than it, than it used to be. So I think regulators gonna, are, are going to want to think about that. But COVID has changed curbside delivery. Yes, it has made it easier across the country to get those things written into law. There, there's definitely behavioral changes in cannabis from COVID that are permanent. New yeah. York is go, is going to present the opportunity. I call it the the Fifth Avenue of cannabis. I mean, in essence, that's what you know. Think you know the Fifth Avenue of cannabis. Like all of the best brands are going to be basically selling the products there, to the, the you know the most the financial centers of the of the United States. Arguably, one of the financial centers of the Western world, and a massive touristic city. So you can expect basically the best of the best, right? You're going to go get your Louis Vuitton of cannabis. So that's, that's know, very brand, One of our brands, yeah, Jada, one of the brands, you know, Her Highness, you know, is talking about creating a flagship store that has like this Saks Fifth yeah. Avenue Love it. stylistic element. And I think you're going to see a lot of brands want to put their, just like, you, you, I mean, you said it best. I think you're going to find brands really gravitating to, to New York. Yeah. Just like they gravitate, you know, L.A., the interesting thing, they didn't have to gravitate to L.A., right? Everyone's already in California. So I think, you know, a lot of great brand. California is definitely the brand launching capital of the world. And now those brands can kind of gravitate to their East Coast cousin. It's, it's the, it's, you know, there's a reason why Fashion Week and those things are in New York. It's from an international perspective. There is no best, better platform as a U.S. brand than being able to exhibit in New York. So you, your, your exposure is just massive on a global scale and you're expected to be the best of the best if you made it there. So there's just so many interesting variables uh, in terms of this New York market. And I, and I do call it the, the Fifth Avenue of cannabis. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait to go and shop. <laughs> Definitely will be interesting uh, for, for like tourism, but I, I know that that's something that came up with New Jersey's decision to legalize recreational cannabis. So, um, and that's, we've discussed like New York at that point in time as well. So for other states, other states that are neighbor New York uh, that are considering legalization, uh, Giada, just how significant is this recent announcement from New York for those surrounding states? Well, you mentioned this, the reciprocity and all those elements will come into play in terms of to see how that, you know, the market, how the, 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 the you know, the, the, the demand and supply will shift back and forth. 
at the end of the, I mean, going back to this element, this, this fifth avenue of cannabis, I think that the, it may create some comp- some heavier competition in terms of the quality and the diversity expected. So those are two things that operators are probably going to have to start thinking about now. Because the consumer is, I mean, now we're in, you know, times of COVID, there's not a lot of, you know, movement, but that's going to change. It's temporary. Once the, <clears throat> the doors open up, if movement goes back, those are the tri-state areas. There's a lot of movement back and forth. So the consumer is going to have a lot of choices and ability to sort of weigh cost versus quality versus brand versus experience, you name it. So I think it's definitely going to put some pressure on the brands and the operators to make sure that they really understand what differentiates their product. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who, from a tourism perspective, that you know were dry in New York, that if they enjoy it and they can get it here while they're here, they're just like LA, they're gonna, there's gonna be a fairly large tourism part, which is why you can't, when you quantify, I think one of the challenges for you guys to quantify like what the illicit market looks like in New York, you're, you're judging it based on the demographics of New York. It's hard to quantify how much itinerant tourist use there is because, and, and as stigmas drop, and if you can get in Times Square and then go take a picture with Spider-Man and King Kong or whatever the heck people do, you know, I think people, are, who knows, you know, the naked cowboy may have to, you know, he may become something different. You know, he may become the naked marijuana leaf or something like that. But, you know, I think that you're just going to get a lot of different legalizing it changes. There, There's the culture and artistic elements of cannabis haven't really been fully explored because it still has this sense of like you can't be fully the full expression of what you want to do where it's illegal. So if you're a New Yorker, you haven't been able, people who have ideas around art or around culture or around building a store, haven't had a chance to participate at all, other than if they were part of a medical licensee. And so I think what you're gonna watch is a, a total hyperspeed unlocking of entrepreneurial spirit that's gonna be interesting. And I I think because people from LA and New York kind of share that that very large, munis- you know, that, that sort of urban, ethos you're going to find just like chicago has been a hub and i think you're going to now you have you know the three the three elements east coast uh midwest and and uh, west coast all legal and and i'm i think there's gonna be an unlocking of incredible uh, entrepreneurial spirit and it's gonna be it's exciting to be on the ground finally in one of these legalizations with respect to where i live right I've, i've been traveling for eight or nine years and i felt like a paratrooper and now like uh i finally get to land on my own shores Indeed, you are certainly front row seats, Mr. Borokowitz, front row seats. Excited. Yeah. Yeah. It is certainly very exciting. And so um, I guess before we wrap up, um, Mitch, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share? And then I'll I'll turn it to Giada for it to share any final thoughts or or words, whether that's on Mexico or or New York or just what you'll be keeping your eye on in, in Q2 of this year. Yeah, I think if you look at um, just the broader cannabis space in general, the the earnings from last quarter were all, you know, uh, for, the, for the larger guys, were all pretty spectacular. And I think when you look at like a New York legalization, a Mexico legalization, where a lot of, I'm sure there will be, especially for California-based companies, a real opportunity to participate and partner. Um, I think you just look at how large the, the growth factor of cannabis can be over the next three, five years. And a lot of people, you know, if you would have asked me in 2013, how many years is this hypergrowth going to be? I might have said a couple of years, maybe five, maybe six. 
And now here we are seven, eight years later, and it's still exploding. And I, I think what I've been surprised by and what I'm, I'm really intrigued to see in Mexico is what happens when you get another federal legalization at this level. But unlike Canada, which had a, a really robust sort of culture for illegal cannabis usage, right? Like BC Bud was everyone in college knew about it. It was kind of like the joke, right? That something from Canada, like get ready, the good stuff's coming. And, um, and I think it's going to be interesting to watch a country start from scratch and watch how American companies participate and how everyone who, who thinks they can fairly judge the total addressable market of cannabis are, they've missed the mark on the low side every time. They're going to continue to miss on the low side for at least a few more years and that the opportunity is really just starting. It's, it's, there's, there's really so much more room in, you know, New York and the, the innovation may lead to more form factors. And obviously the more, the closer we get to a federal legalization and that, that unlocking of the medical research. Um, we saw there was an article recently about Raphael Meshulam and how he's doing, using synthetics for cannabis acids, which are, are quite fragile bonds that you only can do synthetically. We haven't gotten to cannabis-based medicines yet. We haven't even talked about reimbursement which, you know, New York in early March mandated workers' comp reimbursement joining New Jersey and Maine and New Mexico <clears throat> and other states that have done this already. Wait until you get insurance reimbursement. That is the beginning of the next sort of really big run for cannabis from a new consumption perspective. And, you know, I know New Frontiers on top of the data. I, I know I use you guys' data nonstop. And um, I, I just... I'm so thankful that I get to wake up every day and do something that can do such good for society and, and can be managed and, and can be controlled and doesn't have this, you know, this real, really big negative. Obviously there's, there's always negatives if you overconsume or if their addiction is an issue and we have to deal with that as a society as a medical issue. But I, I'd much rather see people paying attention to cannabis than opioids or, you know, or overconsuming other drugs. You know, you know, I don't think of cannabis, I think it's a natural plant. And so watching Mexico, which had a huge stigma against this move forward is a very, very encouraging thing for society and, and for the economic opportunity of cannabis companies. Well said, and it is it's certainly a turning point. So I'm going to go back to, so I'm, I'm calling here from Italy, as you said, bandwidth and connectivity. Fortunately, not the best in the south of Italy. Uh, south of Italy. Great, great um, shoreline and uh, mountains, but not good connectivity. Can't have it all. Can't have good internet have in a beautiful country. Yeah. Apparently not. I'm still <laughs> waiting. Apparently not. Right. But but it certainly gives you know it's a little bit of a it's it's interesting to sort of look look at what's happening from here. With if you think about it, what happened? So European Union already is took a stand. We have the World Health Organization, United Nations. Now we have another third of the of the most populous nations in the world going legalizing and in this case federally. I think that one of the things that we can expect is a lot more countries announcing entering or participating in legalization or decriminalization in some shape or form. I certainly expect a lot of nations here in Europe to follow suit because they're watching and they're very interested. Um, I mean, being here representing New Frontier Data, I'm getting a lot of calls from European, from folks from all over Europe. And I mean, all over Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Central Europe, you name it. Very interested in understanding how can, you know, what does it mean to legalize? What does it mean to decriminalize? How can they participate in, in the North American market, even from here? So I think it's definitely um, one more um, underline uh, for the global, for the global spectators that are looking at what's happening and wanting and, and sort of one more hook 
to have you know that's going to make them want to want to enter it and be part of it in one way or another so certainly um another catalyst to the continued globalization of cannabis absolutely well it, it sounds like the growth and continued expansion of the global cannabis industry certainly does not have any plans on slowing down for the rest of 2021 if you want to stay up to speed and gain access to vetted actionable insights into the legal cannabis industry don't miss out on the new Equio experience launching the week of April 5th. To learn more and get started with a free seven-day trial, visit equio.io. That's E-Q-U-I-O.io. Mitch, Giada, thank you both for your time and for a wonderful conversation today. And as always, thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us at Canna Week. I'm your host, Abby Kaufman, and I'll see you next week. Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.